Welcome to another episode of the Hello Blink Show. I am extremely excited. We have a very special guest with us here today. We have Chris Gamble. He is the co-host of the Amp Hour, runs Contextual Electronics, which has some amazing KiCad tutorials and classes, by the way. And he also runs his own consulting business, Analog Life LLC. Chris is somebody I look up to. Uh, when I want to figure out how do I run a personal business and get clients, I often ask myself, what would Chris do? And I snoop around on his site, LinkedIn, reach out to him, whatever it might be. So in essence, Chris is somebody I want to grow up to be. Welcome to the practical podcast for technical people who want to start their own company. From founding to building your business, we're here to help. I'm Sean Hemel. And I'm Harris Kenny. This is the Hello Blink Show. Chris, welcome to the show. You have a fascinating work history after school. You did a bunch of FPGA design, you, do, you did dry etching, you also do analog electronic design for various companies. So all of this considered, what made you want to start your own consulting business with Analog Life? Mm, that's a good question. So I had a, um, so when I was working at a company back in 2010 or so, yeah, um, I uh, a couple things happened at once. One, uh, I had a mentor who was, starting to do like a bunch of projects on his own. And like, he had a like side business and he's like, you know, I bought a new scope and it was a business expense. And I'm like, Oh my God, I can get like <laughs> effectively cheaper, you know, electronics that if I earn some money on the side first, I'm like, okay, all right, I can do that. And then at the same time, because I just started the amp hour, um, one of the, one of the listeners actually just reached out to me and he was like, do you do consulting? And I was like, I do now. And so that's how I kind of got into it. So um, yeah, that was that was kind of the start. And I, I will say Warwick was the the one who reached out to me. He was amazing as like, he was like a mentor basically in how to do consulting. He had been a consultant and he like walked me through it. He wanted help on the analog side of things, which I was, you know, moderately capable of doing. But then he actually walked me through like the, you know, the process of how to be a consultant because that's what he was also doing. So it was really, really useful. Oh, that's awesome. So can you walk us through some of your process here? Like, like, you know, divulge as much of the secret sauce as you want to, sure. um, that you can. What do you do to go about getting clients? That's something that I knew people struggle with, I think. Yeah, I think, I think that's right. Um, so the, my, my uh, secret sauce is to start a podcast 10 years ago and, uh, hope that it works out many years later. Um, so like everyone has a podcast now. Yeah. Well, you know, <laughs> <laughs> there aren't fewer than there used to be, you know, <laughs> uh, and I'm glad there's more. I mean, honestly, it's such a great way to like get insight into like, I love your guys' show for like getting insight into like the business side of things. And because everybody kind of focuses on like different niches and it really does help to get different viewpoints on things. And so I, I really do appreciate that. Um, you know, in, in my case, like, so when it comes down to it, I, I usually say, you know, get your name out there somehow, right? In my case, it's podcast, but it could be a YouTube channel. It could be a Twitter account. It could be, um, you know, it could be a wide range of things, but it has to basically be what I always say is who who thinks of you as the second person to call? So um, I started getting consulting gigs, you know, some were direct, like that first job I mentioned, but it's really the most of the work that I get is someone has is asked for work. They, they basically, you know, so, you know, there's a company, company X out in Palo Alto, for, for instance, they go to Bobby McGee, who's a consultant out there. He says, Hey, I'm all full right now. Can you talk to Chris? 
And then they, they, they call me up. And so basically it's that second connection. If you can start to build those second connections, that is the most powerful thing you can do. And, um, in my case, you know, I have people that I refer work to now. It's basically, you know, trusted voices, people that I've worked with before. Um, and, and basically if I, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to start doling work out to, you know, like, it's not that I get like so many job requests, but what the reality is, is, you know, I can't work on more than two or two or three projects at once. And so if I, you know, if, and if those are hopefully stretching over a couple months, then hopefully, um, uh, I get, you know, a couple requests that I can pass off to friends and, you know, some are legitimate, some are not, you know, some are going to work out. Uh, and so basically I start to pass them to the people that I know and the people that I trust. And so I guess one thing is get your name out there. And then the second would be to build connections with people who are already doing stuff like this. I do have to say that podcasts not only offer a way to like get your own name out there but during quarantine they've been a great way to like make connections meet new people things that like i would be doing at a conference and just hosting mm -hmm. a podcast is proving to be useful for that so when you when you get a project in do you bill hourly do you do it by project does it depend on the project like what how do you determine that when you're negotiating with a client yeah, it really does depend. I mean, I usually lean towards hourly. And what I always do is I always point people at the same document that I started and love, love, love. It's called So You Want to Be a Consultant. It's on unixwiz.net, I think. Um, so that's a great link. Maybe we could put it in the show notes. But it is, <laughs> the tagline at the top is, uh, why work eight hours for someone else when you can work 16 hours for yourself? And uh <laughs> It's like this super snarky, super, you know, really, you know, he focuses on like pleasing your customers and doing what they want. But there's also a section there about, you know, basically the risks of working in a, a bid uh, scenario, like working for a fixed amount versus hourly. And um, I usually shade towards, you know, usually the people that are coming to me are not like, hey, I just need you to do this simple thing that that you've done before. It's usually more like, hey, I need you to build out some new type of solution and that's obviously the most exciting type of jobs to work on and so things that i you know shade towards and um and so yeah i try and do hourly if i can and um you know, then there's a negotiation around hourly rates and you know deliverables and things like that but of course yeah, I, I have done both i have done both right so and you do a lot of you do mostly board layout analog design testing all of that right you know i'm getting more into rf and firmware okay it, it kind of feels like that's a necessity these days um but I'm actually really enjoying it. I've been, I just talked on the amp hour this week. I actually started hiring tutors. I did this about, I mentioned it about six months ago. I had hired some tutors just to improve my firmware skills. Cause I was feeling a bit, you know, I was gun shy about offering that as a service, you know, at the hourly rate that I'm at, I don't want to learn on someone else's dime, but I do want to learn. And so I started hiring tutors and, um, you know, basically I would not bill for hours that I was anything I was like learning on my own, I would not build for that towards a client, but then all of the results that came out of it, I actually developed some pretty significant firmware and I felt really good about that. And, um, and so trying to offer more stuff than just, than just the analog stuff, because that becomes pretty limiting. Honestly, you have to be a little more broad based when you're doing, uh, consulting electronics consulting. And, uh, and so I've been trying to target that. Yeah. So where, where do you recommend to get these tutorials where, or sorry, tutors, where would you find such tutors? What do you recommend? Uh, well, I mean, for me, it was, it started with like, you know, a revelation that I need to help. And so as revelations go, usually that leads to me tweeting about it uh, <laughs> as, you know, the millennial in me, I suppose. Um, 
And, but basically I was like, Hey, I think I want to do this. And are there people out there that are interested in it? And that, you know, that kind of helped that I had a following a little bit and people helped kind of propel that message forward. And so I had a bunch of people reach out and um, some of the people said, Hey, I'll tutor you for free. And I was like, I don't want to do it for free. Actually. I want to actually, I was actually thinking about my piano lessons. I, I take uh, piano or I used to take piano lessons and just having that skin in the game is really important, I think. And so, so I targeted, um, I targeted people that were willing to take my money and, uh, you know, had a wide range of different hourly rates and, uh, experiences, but because I was targeting as well for myself, I felt like I was more at the beginner. So I actually hired someone with about like four or five years of experience in France. I hired a more experienced person out of Germany who had about 15 years of experience and, uh, and both worked out really well. You know, basically for me, it was to get me over that kind of like the mental hump of like, you know, you open up an IDE, you open up a new example project and you're just like, <gasps> I'm so scared. And, uh, and so for me, it was just like trying to get that stuff out there and trying to get over that hump rather. And, um, and, and so they really helped with that. And that kind of gave me the confidence to then go forward and teach myself more from the examples, you know, pull from those and, and build that, you know, because most, ex- most firmware is working off of example projects. And so it was just kind of showing me the ropes and, and pulling that in. On the more recent stuff, I did uh, um, actually posted to Upwork. And so I posted an Upwork thing and said, hey, I actually do have some. So for the course that I'm teaching on contextual electronics right now, there's a um, there's an NRF 52 on there. Uh, and uh, basically, I, I do want someone to hire. I want to hire someone to write some firmware, but I also want them to show me how to do it beforehand. And so that was kind of a nice, like, you know, it's not just asking for teaching. It was also dangling this work, um, you know, rightfully. So I'm not like, you know, trying to do a bait and switch. Um, but, you know, basically, I want to have that upfront knowledge so that I can follow along and learn from them as they develop the things. So uh, this is interesting to me because you've got, obviously, the you started with the podcast before you started doing services, you've built the services side of the business where you take two to three clients on at a time, but you have, you don't just do services. You've got these like information products Mm -hmm. that you release in the form of your tutorials and classes. And then you've got contextual electronics as well. How do you think about the like different areas of sort of Chris Gamble Inc.? Sort of the business of your brain. Uh, I yes, think the, about the, those the, the Reed Hastings, the uh, the branding of you. I actually have that book on reserve at the library right now because I'm very curious about what it actually says. You know, it, it seems kind of fluffy, but there's a co-author, so it does. Hopefully, hopefully the co-author wrote a lot more of it. Uh, <laughs> is it Reed? Not Reed Hastings. Uh, Reed Hoffman. Sorry, Reed Hoffman, the uh, LinkedIn guy. Yeah, uh, Reed yeah, Hastings yeah. would also write an interesting Netflix book, but a little, little less, uh, you know, applicable to us, I suppose. Um, <laughs> So you're asking, sorry, can you ask that again? I was just trying to make a joke. <laughs> <laughs> no, no problem. Uh, you made a joke. I suspect that most business books are garbage, honestly. Now, yeah. I don't know if this one's any good or not, but I think if they have a co-author, it probably is a little better. Um, yeah. But what I'm wondering is like, so you've got, you know, you've got these different brands that exist in the world between the mm-hmm. Empower and Contextual Electronics and, and Analog Life. But how do you think of your time? Because ultimately you're a single person behind all these things. How do you think about those different things? You know, the decision to bring contextual electronics into the world and s- some of the content already, I think is really well produced and, and really interesting. Nice. I mean, how, how have you decided to diversify, I guess, what you do because you don't just consult? Right. Yeah. It's so uh, let's see. I mean, to give it more historically. So I started with consulting because I was like, 
I get, I get a little itchy when I'm like just doing day job stuff. And so I was at Keith Lee and I was like, Hey, I started a podcast. I want to do a little bit more. I started consulting and then I burned out. And so I kind of stopped doing the consulting thing. And, and, you know, I, that's kind of like a trend. I like try too much and then I burn out, try too much burnout. And I tried to be a little bit more, I've been on the path towards burnout lately, but luckily I think being on my own now and not having like the day job rigors really has helped. Um, so I can modulate basically how much paid work I have versus how much I want to spend on building up the course and the podcasts and, and things like that. And so um, most recently uh, with launching the Context Electronics podcast, which is really meant, it's meant as two things. One, I wanted to get some voices that are non-traditional in the electronics space. And uh, secondly, with that, I wanted to target an audience that is more likely to want to sign up for Contextual Electronics. I had started Contextual Electronics in 2014 because I, I wanted to do this learning program. I had learned about audience members of the amp hour that were interested in like putting the other theory in practice. But, um, but then there was nothing really driving people towards it in a marketing way. And so between those two elements of like wanting to target new audiences and also that audience crossing over with possibly contextual electronics course members, um, that kind of drove that idea to start a second podcast. Um, the amp hour has just been this thing that's been going on in my life for 10 years now. And it's been like Sean said, a great way to network. And so I love doing that to reach out and build the community and build voice around, um, you know, what, what are the newest, latest things? What are, what are the, you know, what are the veterans of the industry doing? And, you know, trying to ask them questions that I would try and do at a meetup, like Sean said too, you know, like trying to basically pick the brains of, of experts and, you know, wild and wonderful weirdos in the electronics industry. You mentioned that you worked for, you had a day job, and yeah. I, I'm curious, I snooped around on your LinkedIn page, if yeah. it wasn't yeah. obvious, yeah. and it shows that during the time you're running Analog Life and Contextual Electronics, so you've got these businesses that you've created, you also did things like product manager for Supply Frame, DevRel for Hologram, and, and some others, so I'm very curious, um, because I, if opportunities like this come up for me, so this is very much a personal question, how did you go about managing that? Are those day jobs and then the others were side gigs or were those like, hey, I'm going to work part-time as Chris or did you contract with Hologram through con contextual, or sorry, through Analog Life? How did yeah, that work? Yeah. So what, what had happened is I was working at ABB as a design engineer. I liked it there. It was a little slow. And then I kind of got the itch again. And so I started um, wanting to build contextual electronics. That's where that came from. That was concurrent with, you know, people at the amp hour, people through the amp hour telling me, Hey, we think there's this need. And I said, I think I can fill that need. And so what happened then was I went to my boss and I said, Hey, can I go part-time at ABB and, um, you know, do design engineering part-time? Cause it also, you know, there wasn't that much analog, the stuff that was needed there, you know, there was some, but not as much as probably there was at Keithley where I had previously worked. And I really was excited about this project, uh, this contextual electronics course that I had built. And he said, you know, we don't do that. And I said, okay, well, I guess I quit. And so that was really scary for me, but um, it worked out okay in the end. Um, you know, I had some savings. I had, uh, Obamacare had just come in. So I was like, I was really worried about healthcare. And so I was able to get healthcare. So that was really nice, ACA. And, um, uh, and so basically I took the jump and that worked out pretty well. Um, and then about halfway, about like three or four months in, I had announced on the Amp Hour that I was doing this thing. And then supply frame approached me about kind of coming to help there. And so that was like a part-time thing. And so it's been always this kind of balance of like um, doing my own thing and then doing day job stuff. I, I think what it really comes down to is like, if I was independently wealthy, I would probably just do 
I, assuming I would still do all this stuff, I think I would just do podcasts and build electronics and show people how to do electronics. I'm interested in helping people learn the field. And that's, that's something because it's something that I always really, really struggled with. And so building techniques and building courses around how to learn electronics, which I think is still a very difficult thing. And so that's kind of the the thing that I have always done. And then I have to earn a living though. And so for a long time, it was like, okay, I'm going to you know get insurance. And I was going to, yeah, cause I'm in the U S I was going to say it's a very U S centric view, but I have to get insurance and I have to, um, you know, make enough money to live. And, um, and yeah, so that kind of just split my time. Over time, I went to Hologram because I thought I'd be getting back into design after five years of supply frame, which was nice. I, I was doing a lot of marketing, but I always say that like marketing is better as my hobby. And I really like doing design engineering at least 40 hours a week and then doing the marketing stuff, the podcast, the everything else on the side as a hobby. Because if that falls away, then no big deal. I'm still designing stuff. I'm still, you know, working my brain in that way that really excites me. Uh, if if it's the other way around, which is what it was for a while, you know, I was working 40, 50 hours in marketing for supply frame because I ended up going full time there. Um, and so if I do that and then the design stuff is just on the side, if that falls away, then I start to decline as a design engineer. And that was, I felt that was actually a uh, detriment to my ability to market to design engineers. And so I flipped the script and then went uh, full-time consulting. I'm not sure so, if that was very linear. So ho- sorry, ho- hopefully that No, no, that... That helps, that helps a ton, actually. And, you know, you, one, you bring up a great point of like, you know what? You can always go ask your boss if you can work part-time. The worst they can say is no. Yeah. Um, they, it's, it's, yeah. it's not always a... <laughs> right. It's, yeah, it's it's not always a, a you know, you, you just you have to quit your day job in order to start consulting. Like, no, you can try to pave your one runway and do all these things and go ask them if you can work part-time. They might say yes, they might say no, but, you know, it's part of the negotiation. Then you tried. I mean, they said no. and I think it depends on the nature of the work, honestly. Um you know, like to ABB's credit, like I think, you know, some of it is there was the expectation that there was a full-time, you know, person in that seat. There was no, there's no mechanism for them. That's fine. Um, but yeah. I think that certain types of jobs where it's like, you know, if it's more towards like a gig type, uh, you know, say you're a fully employed, but like, like a gig style worker, if you have coworkers who are also, you know, maybe contractors, then that actually points towards maybe being able to make that hop to a contractor. Yeah, that makes sense. And you also mentioned that you enjoy teaching electronics, teaching people, like getting people to approach it in a different way, teaching tools and techniques. I'm I'm very similar. Um, like I said, I, I try to follow a little bit of what you've done. I think we're um, kind of stepping in the way, Sean. So yeah, yeah, yeah we, yes, definitely. I try not to step on your toes because you have I a, great, a thing great thing going. Job, so don't worry about that. <laughs> Thanks. Um, but because I struggle with this too, what keeps you away from academia? Ah, um, the... Uh... The everything, <laughs> the everything of it. <laughs> I think the, um, yeah, I don't, I just never, um, I don't think it's a good fit for me. I don't think I would fit well in an academic setting. And honestly, I have a bachelor's degree in electronics. I don't think I'd be allowed to teach there. And so um, all of those things together, I don't think that's a good fit for me. Um, not to mention like, you know, I, it's very real- realistic. I would have, you know, probably touch more lives right now if I would have gone into academia given the you know the enrollment on my course it's not that huge um, but it's it doesn't serve the people that really really want to be there and um, you know I to be completely honest I wasn't one of the people that really wanted to be there when I was in college um, mm. I figured it out later and uh, so I'm kind of trying to make up for my past sins and uh, teach teach former Chris how things really are uh, I don't know if I'm <laughs> succeeding honestly but I, I think that's that's what a, a lot of what drives me yeah, you, that's that's a really good point. I mean, 
I, I wonder too, like I'd have to go back and get my P like I've got my master's, but it's like to do teach in academia, I'd have to go back and get my PhD, which is a whole ordeal. Right. And then it doesn't really I, when make I was, sense. I mean, PhD doesn't prepare you to teach, but like because of the no. structures of academia, that's the way it goes. And like there are some PhDs that are like so I had um Brock Lemaires, who was on the Amp Hour uh, a couple weeks ago. He was a fantastic, fantastic example of an electronics instructor who's actually doing digital programming, digital like online programming. And, um, um, you know, he's a PhD. He's got a wonderful research lab and like doing some interesting things. But I think he's really the exception. You know, I, when I look at like, like uh, the majority of, you know, I try to pull people in that are interesting as well. Tom Lee is another great Stanford in instructor who's amazing teacher. Um, you know, like these are the people that I want to call out and like try and get more of, but I don't, th I think they're the exception, not the rule, unfortunately, because of just how colleges are. I think, you know, they're, you know, most colleges are trying to make more professors and I don't agree with that in the slightest. I don't want to teach theory. I want to teach practice. I want to teach hands-on. Uh, I think there's places that are doing that very well, actually. Some places are doing that well. I think a lot of maker spaces being on campus is another very, very positive thing. But uh, if I was to go I also had a very negative experience. I went to the uh, department, EE Department Heads Association. Um, uh, Digital Net was very nice to send me there. And it was just, it was like a slap in the face, like going to deal with all these professors. It was like de department heads as well. So like the people who are professors who are also doing, you know, who are teaching theory and then also playing enough politics to be in, part, in charge of their department. It was just like, oh, it was just not my, it was not my crowd. It, Digital Net people were definitely amazing, but the people that were attending were, oh my God, not, not my favorite. So there's like this thread that's emerging here. So your presentation in general is very polished, but oh, I'm thanks. like sensing this thread of like, kind of like a renegade. <laughs> I mean, you, you definitely like to be my, yeah, the bad boy of electronics. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't, I don't know. Mine. People right, can't right. See he rides right. an electric motorcycle and he, you know, he, drops resistors wherever he goes yeah that's right it's that, right. It's that light up mohawk that's, that's doing it right, for me. right yeah that's right people can't see because this is an audio podcast yes that's right this actually well, has yeah. a whole bunch of face the, the nose ring yeah the nose ring that's actually just a you know a capacitor <laughs> <laughs> that'd be amazing yeah but I, but i do think you know so I'm, I'm gonna i'm gonna sort of meander here for a second i think that you know it, hardware seems to tend towards concentration there seems to be over time concentration in the hardware industry, uh, you know, whether it's like chip makers or actual like end consumer devices and things like that. And, you know, there are these big brands and uh, that, that people tend to talk about and are familiar with. But I do think that there is an appetite within that for people who are like outside of that system a little bit. And so I think between like with contextual electronics and bringing non-traditional people in, um, the way that you are, I think, engaging in more of like an entertainment medium with the amp hour, with the conversational podcasts rather than sort of traditional dry lectures and, and just sort of hearing your experience with academia and some of these more like bureaucratic institutions. I mean, do, would you say that you are, I mean, do, am I getting a sense for kind of, I mean, you seem like you're very intrinsically motivated. Like you kind of have a direction for where you want to go. And that's sort of, that's the connecting thread between all of these different projects. It's that you seem to enjoy kind of working on your own and kind of following that, sense of what, what you're interested in more than anything else that there's not someone like telling you what to do you don't have like a specific necessarily destination in mind but you're yeah. but you're sort of freestyling as you go with what's sort of interesting at the time is that fair i'd say i'd say freestyling is very fair yeah i think that's um you know like just um yeah i mean 
I, I get a little frustrated with, yeah, I guess traditional, um, the traditional method of doing things, I suppose. Um, I don't know if that's very different from other people, but um, some of the things I've done have tried. And that's the thing. I'm not sure if I'm actually hitting the mark on a lot of things too. Like, you know, the course is not that big. The podcast could be bigger. But but the thing that I like is I like bringing people together. Um, I like, uh, so I helped uh, start Supercon as well, Hockey Super, Day Supercon. And one of the things we talked about at the beginning of that is like, what if we had an entire conference that is like, oh, Sean, someone have a mug right now. I think oh, I was wearing a different, I was wearing that t-shirt yesterday, actually. Um, <laughs> But like we, uh, so Sophie Kravitz uh, is also, she's, you know, the main voice behind it and Mike Stish and Alec uh, Brodich. Um, but what if, what if we took the last, um, the last meal of uh, Maker Fair, which is like, you know, the hangout at BJ's Pizza. And it was like, you know, just like nerds being, you know, out of their shell because they're talking about hardware. What if we did an entire conference like that? And, and. And I think I've tried to take that and extend it as well, like doing meetups and trying to bring people together and like show that there's some culture around it as well. You know, not like high cult, not like high class culture, but like the fact that there's a common thread and that, you know, there's, there doesn't have to be this like, you know, nerd in a shell, um, uh, you know, stereotype. It's basically people are interested in these things and it's, it's cool to be interested in these things. And that uh, a lot of the traditional a lot of the traditional stuff around that I think does not highlight that, you know, you think about dry conferences and dry academic stuff. And it's like, if we try and bring people in and show that engineering is exciting because you're building these things and putting these things out in the world, um, that is something I'm trying to highlight as much as possible, you know, learning by doing and showing what you're working on and meeting other people and showing off what you're, what you're working on at those meetups, like pre COVID. Um, I guess we do digital ones too, but like, you know, it's, it's basically trying to, pull all of these ideas together because it's just stuff that I like as well. Holy crap. So that's the story of Supercon. I had no idea because yeah. I always thought that there was, you know, the old school Maker Fair people. Mm-hmm. And I always kind of assumed that like Supercon then kind of grew out of those old school Maker Fair people. And then they just started meeting up in BJ's. I didn't realize I had it backwards because I... Uh, oh, no, no, I no. That, that is correct. That is correct, Sean. It is. Oh, okay. Yeah, we didn't have anything to do with the... the um, with the BJ's meetup. I mean, that, that was a long time tradition of maker fair people. Um, it kind of got codified by Jerry Ellsworth sponsoring some of it. And then Oshpark took over sponsoring it. And it grew this mm. thing where it's like this kind of must attend event. And you just had a lot of people there. I, so what Supercon was is basically looking at that, being at that, and then being like, Oh my God, how do we get more of this? That's what we really want. And then I've kind of taken that as well and saying like, Hey, let's do more hardware meetups. Let's do this in a city. Let's do, let's try and get people together and like show off with your, what you're working on because it helps to motivate that next thing that you're working on as well. So, yeah. And I love Supercon. It's what, it's my absolute favorite to go to. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's all the parts of, cause I, I feel like maker fair at some point moved kind of from that, the like hardcore tinkerer, you know, OG hacker types mm-hmm. into artistry. And yeah. I don't think there's anything wrong with artistry, but like most projects towards the end that I saw at Maker Fair. Now, I wasn't in that original crowd. I missed the like 2012 and earlier Maker Fair. So yeah. I don't know. I could be talking out of my ass here. But um, it seems like most of those people were like are now the Supercon people and Maker Fair had become more like 
art type installations, um, like your art cars and things you'd see at like Burning Man, which are great to see, but then the like really interesting technical things moved to like Supercon and we didn't see much of that anymore at Maker Faire. Like, is that a fair assessment or am I like got this wrong? I mean, that's, that's consistent. Yeah, I suppose. But I mean, I don't know. Doesn't need labels. It's just, you know, go to both. That's what I say. I mean, you know, like, oh, I did. I, when conferences I are allowed, both. that is. Uh, yeah, I, uh, I, yeah. Miss con- I miss conferences, you know. And that's another thing, like, trying to get together with people. I think that's the, the key thing I try to highlight, too, is that, like, um, you know, people are the feature here, right? And I feel like in traditional education and traditional, you know, stereotypes around electronics and, you know, just engineering nerd nerd culture as well, it's like this loner culture, but it's just not how it works. And it's better when people are together, so... That's that's what yeah, I like, and like trying to do. Supercon does a great job of being inclusive. I see, you know, yeah, yeah. just about as many women, people of color. I, I feel like Supercon does a great job at making sure that it feels inclusive. You know, yeah. there is no, I don't see much neck beardiness going on at Supercon. If somebody doesn't know, they help each other rather than tear mm-hmm. them down. It's yeah. so it's such a good culture. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Yeah, and culture. Yeah. I think culture is important, right? I mean, it, it helps to propagate the future, and I think it's something we can all do better on in general. But I think that, um, uh, you know, it's something we keep trying to improve and bring more people in and show people the joy of of building electronics or really just building stuff and, and changing your environment. I think that's really what it comes down to. Yeah, makes sense. Yeah, um, I think that you know, hardware also is taking on a much bigger role in our society as more and more things are becoming smart, you know, whether it's like facial recognition in public spaces or, mm-hmm. you know, different, different forms of technology that were literally just science fiction are now being deployed yes. in like theme parks and yeah. daycares and things like that. And so yeah. I think that it's definitely helpful to have different people at the table being like, Hey, but like, what if this happens? Right. Anybody, anybody thought about that yet? Right. Right. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah, it's interesting uh, seeing these trends come through. I mean, right now I'm on a bunch of Bluetooth projects, like I said, um, and stuff I'm trying to get better at and learn. But um, as I've said, like, I think you know, my paycheck for the next ten years as a consultant will be basically deploying sensor technology, remote sensor technology, to try and make. Um, to make it easier to service things. That's actually the, that's the the number one thing that I think will be, you know, the maybe less with Bluetooth, more with cellular, but like that's the, that's the push that I see that I'm really excited about. And um, that's the thing I like when I worked at hologram, that was the nice thing to, to see a lot of that. I think that cellular stuff is actually pretty interesting. Um, but I think that that's where my paycheck comes from for the next 10 years. Basically, Hey, we have to drive five hours to get out into the field to check the sensor. What if it just told us how it's doing? You know, what if it, what if there was monitoring technology around it, or maybe it's not even checking a sensor, but maybe the sensor is checking that a process happens, that the dumpster empties, or whatever it has to be, you know. But but basically, monitoring does that kind of thing, and uh, you know that's the the umbrella term of IoT or IIoT, an industrial uh, version of it, because that's usually what I'm getting paid to do. But um, yeah, it's it is it is very science fictiony here. So, I mean, it's 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 out there, you know. Yeah, that's really cool. I just saw. I just listened to a talk or watched a talk today um, that the tinyml.org people are doing. Um, And I had tinkered with this briefly for uh, the videos I do with DigiKey, and it's using those sensors, kind of like the ones you're making, but then you run a very small neural network on it to do things like anomaly detection, to be like, you know, not just like, oh, did this thing happen or whatever, but it's also like, hey, is this motor running properly or is like the vibrations are really weird? And so you're like training these neural networks that are like looking for these anomalies in ball bearings, motors, anything that's kind of like providing vibration data. And Mm -hmm. then you can 
run it on the edge and then say, oh, hey, something's wrong, rather than piping all this data out to the internet. Right. Um, so like that's the next level of science fiction, I think, is then putting those smarts on the sensors that you're designing, which is super cool. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, there was a um, really good, I'm trying to find it here. Um, there was a really good episode of Embedded FM where they had Daniel, I think his name is. Uh, Situn- I cannot pronounce his last name. I feel yeah. so bad. Daniel Situniaki. Yes, that's right. Yes, up. Dan Situ okay. on, on Twitter. Uh, but he had a really good... Um, uh, he was talking about a tiny ML on microcontrollers. Basically, there's a new a new book that he wrote. Uh, it's on Arduino and ultra low power microcontrollers, and um, episode three two seven of Embedded FM. And uh, it was interesting. I, I'd not really looked at it before, but yeah, I think that kind of technology is just going to be it's going to roll over us like a wave, and we're not going to we're going to be like look up in like two years and be like, oh oh yeah, oh that's everywhere. Like oh yeah, yeah. okay. <laughs> uh, personally, I don't do any projects with cameras right now, but I imagine that eventually it'll trickle down to me, uh, just because I think it's. Yeah, it's going to be asked for by more and more people. And luckily, they, luckily, there will be more and more kits that are just like, hey, just drop this chip in here, Chris. You're going to be fine. And I'll be like, okay, I'm cool. Yep. So this is, I'll show you the current one that I'm playing on, the uh, the Open MV. Oh, yeah, I saw, like I saw your, uh, your Twitter post about that. Yeah, Sean is so holding I, up I, a uh, dev board right now, if people yeah. can't see that. Yeah, it's a dev board with <laughs> I know, a right? uh, screen. <laughs> on <yeah>. a podcast. <laughs> yeah. So it's a little it's a little camera and I'm playing with it. It's like 65 bucks for the for the basic module. That's right. Um and it runs it runs MicroPython, so it's you know easy to yeah. script. Yeah. You know, you, you do more hardcore firmware type stuff, so it might be a little I wouldn't uh, say hardcore. High. I'd say simplistic, but yeah, low level. <laughs> Fair. Yeah, Klavana yeah. yeah, makes um, that. That's a that's a great that's the open MV is really great. Yeah, Klavana's um he's given a couple talks at Supercon as well. So, oh, nice. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, great board. One of the things they've done recently is loaded uh, TensorFlow Lite onto it. So you, you cool. c- it actually does like person detection out of the box, which oh, just cool. kind of blew my mind. Yeah, that's crazy. Um, yeah, so like all those, all those cameras that you pay extra for to do person detection, you're like, no, 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 like this thing's already doing it yeah, for right, free. Right. For just a free. Plug, plug and play module. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, I want to talk about podcasts real quick because you, you were like the poster child for create your own brand by making all this content, whether it's through, you know, podcasts when podcasts weren't the like in vogue thing to do yet um, with the amp hour. And now you've got a new one for contextual electronics where you're interviewing, you know, different people and doing your own thing and owning that, that intellectual property. Um, But I started the third one too, if you didn't know. Oh, what was the third one? The what third did I miss? One was the engineering commons. I helped start that one. Uh, so I did that for about 25 episodes with Jeff Shelton. Okay. And then that uh, about 25 episodes in, I had started Contextual Electronics and I was like, felt that early burnout stage of like trying to do too much. And um, yeah, I, so I said, Hey Jeff, I think I'm, I'm done with this. And he ended up finding some great co-hosts, Carmen Frisi and uh, I forget the other people. I'm sorry, but I talked to Carmen recently, so I remembered him. Um, and uh, yeah. And so they kept it going for about a hundred total episodes, 110, I think. So that's a great, oh, dang. it's still out there. And that was kind of more like, that was meant to be more broad. Um, so it was more like broad engineering ideas. Um, and so, you know, talking to people across different industries, uh, civil engineers, mechanical engineers, stuff like that. So it was meant to be like a play on like the tragedy of the commons, but like the engineering commons, you know. Oh, got it. So like the shared, <laughs> I was wondering the, about shared the shared context of all those things. So context okay. was already taken. I missed that one. <laughs> fair, fair. Um, so you're you're doing this, and do you find that most of your inbound clients, because this is very much like a you know content marketing, inbound marketing, sure, all sure. those things. Like it sounds like you started doing amp hour kind of like for fun, and it's like, oh hey, I, I'm starting to get clients from this. Do you find that most of your clients are coming from 
your podcasts, your website, social media, because once you've kind of created a presence for yourself, you've, you've got all this content that's out there. Where do you find that your inbound is mostly coming from for your client leads? Yeah, I mean, a lot of it. So I'd say it's kind of split 50-50 these days. And some of it is inbound and some of it is um, word of mouth. So like other other consultants. Um, I will say this. Uh, the really nice thing is that the people that are contacting me as um, you know, consultant based on having heard the amp hour or watch contextual electronics or anything like that, basically they already know what I can do. And they're not asking me to do anything super out of my wheelhouse. And usually there's not a lot of conversation about it either. You know, it's basically like, hey, here's my my hourly rate, they say, yeah, you're nay. And then we go. And that's a lot different than if I was prospecting and, you know, trying to pitch people on this idea. Like right now I'm going through a, 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 a proposal with a, a former coworker. Um, he basically has this contact kind of a, you know, not, it's a, it's a known contact, but the, the known contact is not part of the decision-making team at this business. Right. And so basically he made the intro to the other people in the business. It's a great opportunity uh, we're basically putting together this proposal, but it's a true proposal at this point. It's basically like, you know, multiple rounds of meetings, multiple rounds of proposals. I'm putting hours in that are just like not uh, not guaranteed to work out. And uh, I'm excited to work on the project possibly, but but it's, it's much more open-ended. It'll probably be a bid job again. And so it's not the way that I normally like working. And so what the Amp Hour does, what Contextual Electronics has done is basically move people kind of into my sphere. And that's been great. And then it's like, hey, let's just roll with this. And most of the time, because they know me, they're ready to go. And it's a kind of a comfort level based, based on having listened to me or having seen what I do online. And that that alone is very, very worthwhile. That has been seamless um, for certain clients. Okay, so one more question. Sorry, Harris. How often do you have to say no? Uh, no in what way? Because there's, there's different types of no, right? There's like the Japanese no where you say yes, but it's actually no. Uh, and then there's also like, you know, there's... Uh, I'd love to introduce you to this other person. I'd love to, mm. you know, like, so yeah, I mean, there's, there's different types of no. Okay. I do the same thing where it's like, if I have to tell somebody no, cause I don't want to take them on for whatever reason, like I sure. don't have the time or I don't really want to work with them. I will do my best to try to hook them up with somebody that I sure. think is a better fit anyway. Yeah, so that's, that's a good point. That's very common. I think that I would actually put those in very different camps. I, if, if it's, I don't have the time, then basically I'm, and they're, they're like a well-qualified client. They're basically someone who, I know what they're working on. They're not like super cagey about what they're working on. They're open about what they're doing. I will happily pass it on to like my my best referrals. I will just say, hey, here's my buddy Bill. Go talk to Bill, and you know he'll 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 be a perfect fit for you. If it's more like cagey, like I really want you to sign an NDA, and um, I can't tell you because we've patented all this stuff, and we think it might be this really big thing. I'm like, mm, okay, you know, like, and it's not that I won't give him a chance. I will give him a chance. But, you know, past the half hour conversa intro conversation, when I actually try and if I'm not understanding what you're doing past a half hour, I'm either just going to turn you down or I'm going to, you know, pass you off to someone who's looking to take a shot. You know, I have some friends that I basically are like, hey, I want to get into consulting. I say, look, I will send you the stuff that, you know, might be a good fit for you, but it might not like people that are not proven to me yet. And then basically see how that works out. And so I might send you're, you're foisting clients off to other people. I mean, yeah, you could say it like that. I think it's, it's, yeah, it's, um, it, I'm usually very upfront that I, I say in the intro or in the past along email that like, Hey, I don't think this is going to work out, but it might. Um, and oh, it might be someone, yeah, that's fair. It, it might be someone I just gave some really good work to as well. Um, you know, I've taken intros from other friends that have, have been, yeah, I don't think this is going to work out for you either, but you know, they, they passed along anyways. And it's a nice way to 
just get it moving. Get things yeah. moving. At yeah. least say you're doing due diligence. At least saying like, look, I, yeah, I sure. want to help you in the best way possible. Yes, exactly. I want to go back really quick before Sean rudely interrupted. <laughs> <laughs> um, back to pricing. Have you ever played around with value-based pricing in looking at projects? Um, can you explain what that is, please? Okay, so the idea, this is before, there's a guy named Alan Weiss, who I think is really good on the subject of consulting. If folks are interested in maybe going into consulting, I would definitely recommend checking out his work. And um, he talks a lot about value-based pricing, where basically, you know, you kind of see what the value of a project is for a client, and you price Mm -hmm. based on that, rather than sort of, this is my rate, or a fixed bid of saying, I think this is going to be, you know, whatever, $10,000 worth of work. You know, if you say, okay, well, you know, this you know, this project, you know, it's a big product launch for a big company and this is a big market. So, you know, I'm going to charge. Right. 1% of something. revenues, right. Or something. Yeah. Like that. Something you like pitch that, based on that. Right. Yeah. yeah I, I have not gotten there yet. I think so. Um, uh, patio 11 or Pat, uh, Patrick, uh, yeah. McKinsey also is that's not who you said, right. It was someone different. No, it was someone different, but he talks about it as well. Yeah, He talks about it as well. Yeah. And I think that it is great. I think it's a little easier for software. So I, what I think is the tough thing is that, um, Hardware is a little further down the value chain, as much as it pains me to say that. So I think the people that can do the easily easiest are salespeople, right? So marketing, sort of, but sales especially. They're like, hey, look, I'm going to go take your revenue from $1 million to $2 million. All I want is 1%, or all I want is 10%, right? And basically, it's like a no-lose scenario for the end for the, the client, right? There's basically, oh, I'll have an extra million dollars. I only have to give, you know, 100000 to Harris in order to get me there. Great, right? That's $900,000 net that is like no problem. And if it's literally that like that dependent on the value you're delivering, that's amazing. It's harder, I think, with I think then you can maybe then step it back to say, okay, now we're talking like high level software, right? So I'm gonna go and update your, you know, your PHP backend to do all this other stuff and it'll improve your SEO. And I'm just throwing out terms here because I don't really know what I'm talking about. <laughs> but basically there is some like very direct like um uh potential end customer value that basically the client says, I didn't have you know, I was at X, I want to get to Y, I got to Y, I'm willing to pay some fraction of, of the difference to the client. And so that's what Patrick McKenzie talks about, the guy you're talking about talks about. Um, now, when you take it back to hardware now, it's like, okay, so now um, I design a board that they don't know, you know, it's hard to draw that all the way forward, right? So now, let's say that someone hires me to make a that wearable widget, right? It's a little Bluetooth wearable widget. And they think, okay, we think at some point down the road, if we develop a web front end to sell this thing, and if we develop all the software to handle the IoT stuff, and if we have a sales force that pushes it, and if we have all this stuff, it's so far back in the value chain that's really tough. Uh, and honestly, I think that's why software software people get paid more than hardware. I mean, some of it's just demand, right? But it's also, it's really tough to get, to prove ultimate value, especially because usually the company is is fronting that money to make hardware. Hardware is so capital intensive that you have to front money in order to put this thing out in the world. Um, it's a, I'm not saying it's, it's, there's no money involved in software because there very obviously is, but it's, uh, it is a little bit closer to the client and, uh, and that money you're fronting is a little bit better known of, of the end result. So that makes it difficult in the hardware um, space. That makes sense. Now, would you... I guess another way of thinking, or I'm curious if you do like strategic advising. So like if you're doing a consulting project. What am I doing right now, Harris? Yeah, that's right. (laughs) 
That's right. Uh, no, so, not really. So <laughs> he's send us a bill. He's gonna send us a bill when he's done. Right, right, yeah, right. That's right. Oh man, three this is cookies. Yes, we've ever had. Yeah. <laughs> and he's gonna value price it, so it's gonna be like two hundred grand. Right, right. What have you done? Yeah, he's like, hey guys, this is just a slice of your lifetime earnings. That's right. Right, <laughs> <laughs> right, right. So like you know, they say, hey, we want to do a widget, but like we don't really know exactly what needs to be on the board, or we don't even uh-huh. we don't really know what needs to go into it. I feel like that would be an opportunity where you could say, hey, look, whatever hardware you commit to is going to set the tone for the rest of everything else that comes. So you need to pay me more because really what I'm building is the box. Once this box right, is built, right. you have to stay inside of it. I'm curious if you think that resonates at all. Uh, it does a little bit, but what, what it ends up happening. And so I have a friend who's doing this right now. Um, and basically, and actually I have a, a former client who used to operate with people like that specifically. So let me give like a gen- gen- generic example of what the former client did. They basically, they knew they had a, a need for a uh, industrial widget that basically processed data out in the field, right? Very hardened. Uh, and what happened was basically a consultant had come to them and said, hey, I can go and redesign this widget for you. They're like, great. How much does it cost for NRE, non-recurring engineering costs? And he said, zero dollars. And they're like, zero dollars that's great how much is the part price well it's going to be about eight hundred dollars per piece and i went and looked at the bomb cost of this thing and it was about 150 dollars. so that means that guy has been netting the 650 dollars difference for the entire life of that product now so that is an investment on the basis of that consultant who basically said no nre but i make it all up on the back end right and so it's basically like uh it's like having an agent being like hey baby you know we're gonna make three percent on every pair of underwear that you sell you know like that kind of thing like uh Basically, it's it's nothing up front, but you make it over time, and that is a way to get very very rich if it all works. If it all works out, it is also a great way to waste a whole bunch of time, especially if you don't know what you're doing. And so, because I'm closer to the beginning of my consulting journey, because I would really mark August of three two years ago as like my that's when I really full time consulting, like nonstop full time consulting. I'm only two years in. I'm not trying to do that right now. Eventually, yeah, I might try and target that thing. So. Um, so like I said, I have this friend who's doing this right now. He's basically building this widget in an industry he has been working in solidly for five, six years, where he basically took on all of the risk. He built this thing, and then basically he's offering it at a slightly elevated price. Now he's in a high mar- he's in a high volume industry. So he's not making a lot per unit, but he's selling so many of them, he is really gonna rake it in over time because of that. Well, hopefully, you know, like that's there's no way to know, but be, he is taking this risk based on that. And him and I have talked about like what would this look like for other customers? What it basically means is swallowing that cost at the beginning of all your development time, all of your, um, you know, all of the risk associated with it. If there's factory problems, you're going to China because with, on your own dollar, you're going to get it fixed because you know that there's no way that you could pay it unless that thing gets out the door. So um, the closest thing that I have personally is I my latest course of contextual electronics is a thing that I'm calling the Advanced Bluetooth Cellular Board. It's ABC. Uh, easy as one, two, three. Uh, and basically it's this cellular board that I've been building. I just got the PCBs back and it's got a cell model module on it. It's got a Bluetooth module on it. It's the thing I mentioned earlier. And then it's a, basically it's a, it's a module that plugs in quasi Arduino ish, but it's my own design. So basically it's meant to be like a, you know, it's basically a starter module for everything. And then I just make different boards that plug onto it. And so I kind of tried to over optimize it as I kind of kept thinking, I really overdid it, but basically I said, okay, I'm going to make this cell module with Bluetooth on it that has battery charging and all the other things that it needs, SD card, reader, and LEDs, and blah, 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 blah. 
And then, so I'm going to do three things with it. One, I'm going to show how I designed the entire thing. So that's the latest course in contextual electronics. It's about 65 videos so far, probably about 65 hours of video rather of me designing the entire thing. So basically, you know, and it's like real time. So it's, you know, some of it's slow, but basically if you want to sit on my shoulder, as I make these design decisions, you can watch me design this thing. And, you know, for better or worse, some people really like that. I call that the apprentice method. Some people don't like that. That's fine. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, um, I'm planning to sell it on Tindy, right? So just selling it. This actually came from uh, uh, Ryan Cousins, who runs uh, uh, Critical, K-R-T-K-L. Um, Critical is like a des- the design house. They designed a, so I had him on the amp hour. And Ryan was telling me about this board they make called the Snickerdoodle. The Snickerdoodle is a FPGA-based uh, dev board. It's got a bunch of expansion headers on it, and it runs Ubuntu. And so he started selling this as a crowdfunding campaign about five years ago. They've been selling it ever since. It's got a, a Zinc processor on there. So it's got ARM A9s, two, two ARM A9s and FPGA fabric around it. And the idea is basically that they ported Linux to it. They sell this board for like 250 bucks. It sells on Mauser or anywhere else. And then people can plug this into their vision application like Sean was talk, talking about or anything like that. But when he was on the show, he was talking about the fact that their business is usually not quite just selling boards, right? Because it's hard to make money just selling boards. Their business is taking that starter board and customizing it for various customers. And in fact, uh, Earl and uh, I forget the other guy's name uh, uh, were uh, from, oh boy, so many guests, guys, 515 shows or something so far. Um, Earl Makana from uh, from Makana, um, it's uh, basically the same kind of design model where basically they're making hardware it's out in the marketplace you can buy it as a hobbyist you can buy it as a professional whatever but their business is customizing that hardware and this is not new this is not a new thing right you could see the same thing with uh there's modem makers that do this kind of thing there's you know a wide range uh colin uh colin i guess colin k colin k is uh anyways from punch through design same thing they have a they had a bluetooth dev board the the little bluetooth um it was like a little Arduino the Bluetooth light, light bean or the that's right the light blue bean yeah 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 like that's it yeah and so same thing they were they were a design shop that made hardware that is lead generation so that's the last one for me where so the first thing was showing people how to build it if you want to go and follow along and build your own no problem the second thing is selling the hardware and then maybe making it a you know basically some people just might buy the hardware the third thing though and the big one is lead generation so that I can turn around I can plug in I can prototype with a board that I so someone comes to me and says hey Chris I want to have a cellular connected motor driver that sits in the middle of the field and it's solar powered i make a little motor driver daughter card i plug it into this thing and i have a prototype in like 20 hours and so for me the value proposition is being being able to take a known platform use it over and over and over again and then also use it so that other people buy it and they say eh, you know what i'd rather just have pay, pay chris to fix this thing and, and make it a real thing and so that's the last one and so i i tried to over i, I tried to over optimize it i might thread that needle i might not uh, we'll see how the board works out. But uh, in the meantime, the nice thing for me was like the fallback was, well, and I showed people how to build it regardless because it's it's a, it's a the most complex board that I've designed on Contextual Electronics uh, so far. And it's been it's been interesting. 65 hours worth of interesting, I suppose. <laughs> that's pretty good. Uh, that's actually like a little more than a week. So that's, yeah, that's really good. Yeah. Um, so I, I see a lot of people, I mean, I, I went through this too, right? I struggle with this idea of like, oh, I just can make and sell these things on Tindy and I'll be the next Adafruit or SparkFun. And I, I don't think we are, like this point in time, I don't think somebody is going to create another SparkFun or Adafruit. I don't think that's going to happen. Mm-hmm. So 
I mean, they, they might. Like, whatever whatever comes next, I think there will always be a need for hobby electronics, uh -huh. but I don't think it will look like how Sparkfun right. and yes. Adafruit. Yes, I agree. I don't think they'll, they'll right have now. the same methods. They might have the same size or the same kind of marketplace at the end, but yeah, I think you're right. It's not going to get there in the same the same way. Right. It's not going to be like, oh, I built this thing in my basement and I'm selling exactly. it online right. and I suddenly... Because right. like, they, were, they were filling a need that didn't exist at the time. Exactly. So I, you're bringing up a good point of like somebody who's looking to do that you can create these dev boards. Don't expect to make a lot of money on it. Cause like right, right now we're looking at like, you know, I, I have to imagine that Arduino struggling. Maybe I don't know much about them because we've got all these like Chinese like knockoffs that are like people want to get involved in Arduino stuff. And you're like, well, I just go buy the half price one or the quarter price one. Sure. And, and right. The Chinese knockoffs are, you know, that's the problem with open source hardware, but for all the good yeah, that sure, Arduino sure. has done. Um, well, I think no. I think that actually is an interesting point in there, buried in there, though. The the idea that like, so what is the value of an Arduino, or what is the value? It's really brand value, right? So like, Arduino has mm -hmm. a very strong brand. I think um, they bring a lot of people in, and they filter a lot of those people. Um, they don't actually have a consulting arm, which would be interesting. They they ended up turning around and making this cloud platform. That's an interesting play. I think it'll be interesting to see if if that has large uptake in the market. I think it probably won't be as strong because the people that graduate out of Arduino into needing stuff like that are not as big. I don't think it's as big as as needed to support a company like that unless they're charging very high rates. Um, but I think the value of brand is really strong there too. And I think this because um, uh, I had, well, so my fiance was like asking me about, she's like, well, you know, she she knows how much I make and she's, I've told her about, you know, competition from places all over the world and different uh, cost of living areas and stuff like that. She's like, why does anyone hire you? And I'm like, oh. <laughs> Well, I'm glad we're building a life together. Uh, <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> um, I'm Thanks, glad honey. she has a great job. Yeah. That's cool. Um, and I was like, you know, that's a great question. And the answer is because um, I offer other things, I guess. You know, I have I have brand value. I have, I have, I'm a known quantity. Then it's like, of course, people could go and, you know, source boards from Upwork. Uh, you could find tons of people that are doing similar things on Upwork for much less, uh, but they're not known quantities. And I think that kind of, points towards a you know a comfort level of you know the it points towards the 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 necessity to put your voice out there so that people will understand you know where you're coming from what your capabilities are and feel comfortable with it enough to just move forward because otherwise there's a huge hurdle to get over and to book that first client or to you know to build that backlog of of satisfied clients that will recommend you in the future so um yeah it's it's a tough thing but i think that I think I'm going to make money. Hopefully, you know, like, <laughs> I think people are going to hire me at some point. So, um, yeah, I think it'll be interesting. Cause I've had a couple of ideas. Like I was coming to the same kind of notion that you were about this idea of like, okay, if I make a board and sell it, I probably won't, I can't compete with like Sparkfun, Adafruit, Arduino, or, uh, yeah, all the, the Chinese knockoffs. Just, 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 just say China, right? I mean, like China. I there's, there's people out there that are willing to make hardware for very, very low cost. And like, and they make enough volume of it that they're going to, mop the floor with you every time so if that's if that's yeah. your game if you're trying to start a, you know someone that sells on ebay at super low volume or super high volume and low margin like that's a that's a up, uphill battle but if you're trying to make yeah. bespoke hardware for someone that has a very specific purpose i think that there's a lot of room in that space still yeah no and i i like that idea of like you create a board you make a class showing people either how you make it how you use it whatever it is yeah. and then that's not even your biggest money maker it's really lead gen for people who want you to customize the board for them you're like well you're going to pay me for my time now that's right you yeah. put all this work up front so it's like it's essentially like you're making hardware that's essentially marketing content for you yeah i think that's i mean that is uh, that is 
a good example of what I'm trying to do for the rest of my life probably is, you know, make hardware really solve problems with, you know, by making things. I love doing that. Um, but have a fallback and, you know, show, show your work a little bit, right. That kind of leads in the open source hardware thing. Um, show your work, show that you're capable, and then that will help to lead to future things as well and try and meet some cool people in the meantime, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. Oh, uh, this was great. Uh, Harris, any last questions? Cause I, I know we're up against a real past nope. time here. No, I'm just thinking about your fiance asking why anyone would choose to work with you. I mean, why, <laughs> why did she, she choose to marry you? I mean, yeah, you're exactly. in a very competitive yeah. 3.5 right, billion right. person marketplace. For- right there, lady. Come on. You know, she, <laughs> you could swipe right on anybody else. You, you, you know, you effectively swipe right on me. Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, yeah, we actually met through friends. So, you know, it's basically, so actually, maybe that's a great example, right? We the met referral through friends. Business. It's a referral business, right? And so like, and that worked out really well. And like, and we've actually had that conversation of, we wouldn't have met each other in a marketplace situation, but because we had friends that, um, you know, we went, they went to school together. I knew them professionally. I met, uh, it was a couple actually that introduced us. I met, I met the guy in that couple from uh, professionally, he listened to the amp hour. That's how I met him. So basically, I met my fiance through the through the amp hour. So like that is the number one the number one benefit I've gotten from that show so far. So, all right. So go back in time, ten years, start a podcast. Years, It'll change your life. You can be just right. like Chris, the, <laughs> or just the start whatever's new. You put yourself out there. That's, electronics guy. Yeah, hope the he, bad boy of electronics. I bet. Yes, exactly. Yeah, you know, I'll have to get that that leather jacket made at some point, guys. <laughs> oh, that'd be great. So, in the in the very small off chance that somebody has not heard of you, where can they find you online? Uh, so, chrisgamble.com is my personal site. Uh, AnalogLife.co is the uh, consulting site. Uh, theamphour.com is the first podcast. Contextelectronics.com is the course and the second podcast. KiCad.info is the forum that I run for KiCad. Uh, what else? 3H, right? Aren't you involved in those? Oh, yeah. HardwareHappyHour.com is also, uh, yeah, so Hardware Happy Hour. Um, and there's a, um, there's a Discord channel for that stuff. Twitter, uh, Chris underscore Gamble. There's I'm a lot of places. I have a couple YouTube channels. So um, probably, yeah, ChrisGamble.com is probably the easiest way to find me and then branch out from there. And um, All right. Chris yeah. Gamble, he's on the internet. I am, yes. He is. Chris, this has been wonderful. Thank you so much for taking time and yeah. offering us all your great insights. And, My pleasure. Uh, Keep making good yeah. shows, guys. I really like this stuff. I think it's really good to, to dig into the business side of things, and I hope you keep doing that. Thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, please subscribe, rate, and share the show. Let us know what you think on Twitter at HelloBlinkShow. Find show notes at HelloBlinkShow.com. The Hello Blink Show is shared under a CC BY 4.0 license by Skull Riza LLC and Kenny Consulting Group LLC. The intro and outro music is Routine by Amin Maxwell and is shared under a CC BY 3.0 license. This song can be found at soundcloud.com slash Amin Maxwell slash routine. <laughs>